This is part two of my conversation with Lee Cronin, the Regis Chair of Chemistry in the School of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow. He's a prominent researcher in the field of chemistry, known for his work on the origins of life and the development of complex chemical systems. With over 20 years of experience in his field, Cronin has made significant contributions to the scientific community and is widely recognized for his expertise and achievements. He holds numerous awards and honors and continues to play a leading role in advancing the understanding of life's origin and chemical evolution. So highly, uh, welcome back. I have a question which is kind of related to what you're working on and slightly different is related to DMT. DMT is kind of a chemical. It's something that our brain produces and that kind of helps with our consciousness and understanding who we are. Would that even be connected in some way in studying, studying and understanding the creation of life with DMT? That's an incredibly interesting question. Um, I've never taken DMT. I'm not sure if I ever would take DMT, but um, but it is a mind-altering drug. Does it have anything to do with consciousness origin of life? Probably not. Um, but one of the things I think is super interesting is how molecules are in the brain trigger um, our different perceptions of reality. But I guess the, the, the but the problem of consciousness. And the problem of the origin of life are probably similar. Um, and what I mean by that is um, the way that um, we have this phase transition in uh, chemical space where we're able to build life forms or life forms evolve, the evolution of problem solving, um, seeing it when you get what you get with consciousness and abstraction, is also something very interesting in how that happens in the substrate. So what I mean, life comes out of chemicals, so we have a cell, then you go from cells to multicellular organisms. Those organisms have sensors and the ability to move, actuate. So you imagine like a robot. Um, but then you've got this robot, you can sense things, you can move, but then how do you control the movements? And what is an evolution selection produces the ability to do abstraction. And that is where consciousness comes from, right? In consciousness, you have to be able to remember the past, experience the present, and imagine the future. Imagine the and this is all important for your survival. And so selection invents the origin of life to make selection of life forms, and then selection again invents consciousness for us to improve our ability to survive. So I think through survival, but I think with DMT, I, I, yeah, I, I would love to understand the process of consciousness with these molecules, which is probably what you're getting at. And um, I think there's so much research to be done there. It's unbelievable. So what, again, this is another idea that like, you know, I've been contemplating. What are the chances that we are like the AI per se systems created by aliens? I'm going to aliens already. And they have like you know created consciousness in us and then we have become like you know there's deep learning so we are like you know the advanced version of deep learning robots and that's how life evolved on earth so you're so what you're saying is are we in some kind of simulation mm. invented by this the, with the substrate if you like our universe is a technology and we're just exploring that technology and building things um i think i think that the chances of that are zero i think um, but it's a really interesting thought process. Now, how can I convince you it's zero? Now, this is not so easy. Um, now, 
and I and I think I would say have, there are two, maybe two or three scenarios. The first of all, that the universe is non-computational at the beginning, right? It just is the universe, but we can it, but we can build technologies within the universe, and therefore um, that framing allows us to view the universe through a complex from a through a computable perspective. This is what's happening, um, and or we're living in a simulation and produced by a higher intelligence, aliens, whatever, and that we are exploring this universe and it is just a simulation. The problem with that I have conceptually is how do we falsify that idea? And if, if, we are, if this is not reality, there is, we are just a simulated version of reality, what is below us then? What is actual reality? Because if are we in a simulation that's in a simulation that's in a simulation in a simulation, at some point there must be a physical reality for all this to exist in. And the fact that we can't really bottom that out makes me think it's false, not falsifiable. And if it's not falsifiable, then we might as well just say it's zero. Um, but then that's not satisfying either, because you probably say, well, let's poke the universe. Is there, can we, can we break the universe, you know, and see a segmentation fault and like, you know, hack the universe and see the underlying code. But I think those analogies are, we're going to see by looking, discovering the origin of life or how to make artificial life and then go to, go to intelligence and consciousness and understand machine consciousness at some point. We'll see how those layers are relate, related to one another. They are basically on the backs of different abstraction layers. Um, and I think that's probably why it's a good thought experiment, but we really need to be super careful about falsifiability. So I recently spoke to Donald Hoffman where he mentioned that there's a possibility that the entire world is a simulation and we have just like, you know, we've been wearing our VR glasses for too long. And the reason being that, you know, the, our understanding based on physics is time and space. And then that's all that we're basing our foundations on. And it's very limited. And once we understand the bigger picture, the thing, the world will open up to us, be it, I don't know, where. What, yeah, my problem with that is what is he talking about? I have no idea what he's talking about. So what Donald Hoffman does is he generates this kind of mystical thing, hmm. but without actually defining it as, oh, it's not reality. You know, evolution hasn't found reality. Well, of course, evolution hasn't found reality. Evolution exploits reality for survival. So I agree with him on that, but I don't think there's anything mystical or missing. I just don't understand what he's talking about. And in general, if I don't understand what someone's talking about, if I'm being really critical, it means they're not really saying anything, to be honest, right? It's like, you know, I can get the idea that maybe there's this panpsychism in the universe, right? People say that you can, there's, small pieces of consciousness attributable to matter and they add up and and i don't and i that's philip goff's point of view um donald hoffman's point of view is something different i don't understand so there is the materialist i am the panpsychist there and the spiritual up here now doesn't mean i think that people who believe in uh, something else are wrong it's just i can't in falsify that and if i can't falsify that then it's a great conversation and if it doesn't give me a philosophical, uh, philosophical new grounding, I don't know what to do. What I can do with panpsychism is I can say, okay, it, 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 I can kind of think about how I get from a materialist world to a panpsychist world and do experiments. And the nice thing about consciousness or the problem of consciousness is we think it's a probably not an all or a nothing. It's produced by evolution. And I would just say to the panpsychist, hey, guys, that's great. 
but we probably can't have consciousness in electrons and fundamental particles because they're not capable of evolution. Maybe let's look at the cell that's capable of evolution and, and ask ourselves, is that information processing at some layer capable of supporting a higher level abstraction? And when is a higher, what is that, when, when will you agree something is conscious and then have a productive argument going down? And then I'll go to Donald Hoffman and say, right, you, you believe in this, what, let's, let's, let's see if we can replace the belief with kind of measurements that we can do and, and predictive reasoning and explanation, then we're good. And so at the moment, I, I don't know if he's playing a game with the world just to kind of be cool, or I don't, I don't know. I've, I've listened to him a lot. I just don't understand it, which probably means I'm, I'm just an idiot. I'm a very good idiot. <laughs> You're so, definitely not an idiot. I wouldn't say that. Well, I would say I'm a professional, not, not idiot, but I'm prof I like to professionally ask questions and ask what it means. So, and I don't think we should squeeze out those ideas. I would love to understand Donald Huffman. I'd love to debate him, actually, because I have a great deal of respect for the fact he's trying to push a new idea, but I'd like to kind of, I'd like that to be stress tested in a slightly different way. Because right now, he's, he's, the people who are stress testing and just give him time to basically make, kind of, it's a story, not a, not, it's a fictional story. It's not a factual story. And that's, that, and I think people are kind of thinking that it could be factual and I don't see any basis for those facts. So what makes, life itself then wh where does it begin from like when do you say this is living and then this is not i yeah i think that that's um and again i'm probably in a, like analogous to panpsychism right because i'm like oh then there's not there's no such thing as life there is things that can evolve and what i think so maybe there's no such thing as consciousness there's just degrees of ab abstraction ability and so and i think maybe um so to this, let me ask you a question directly. When is, when is life and non-life? I think that I can take two extreme ends and say, look at sand you've, or rocks, like maybe moon rocks, no life there, no prospect of life. And let's take some bacteria that, and then you say that's living, right? You feed the bacteria food, they replicate, they might, they have a genome, you can sequence, they do all this stuff and take plants, animals and so on, alive. Now, if I cut them down, right, and say, right, if I go to a plant, I go away to a plant cell, go from animal to animal cell, so I can say, okay, plant cell, animal cell, bacterial cell, okay, it looks like a cell is a minimum viable life form. So I wouldn't say what is life, because I just don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if it's a spectrum, but I could say, what is a minimum viable life form? In the same way I'd say to the, the panpsychists, what is a minimum viable consciousness look like? rather than kind of thinking about those levels. So, and so I think a minimum viable life form is a cell. For me, I'm thinking life form would be something that has a goal. Like it would be just to reproduce, continue living. So just like, you know, feed itself, uh, not mm -hmm. specifically a sort of consciousness of like, who am I? But those few things like, you know, a goal of like survival and then second, procreate and replicate. But I, I would, yeah, I would argue there are no goals. I think goals don't exist. I think, so, but, but we, but the, they do exist in the past. And you, I mean, you, you have a goal to record a podcast or go and shopping or um, finish, you know, I don't know, write an essay or something. I think that those goals exist for us right now. But if you're saying 
what is the goal of life? I think the goal of life is one thing and one thing only is to persist in time uh, and, you know, just carry on being. And so that being, all goals come from being. So you could, you listed like, you know, procreate and all this stuff. Well, to carry on being, be, to exist, you need to procreate because otherwise you die of old age. And so, uh, except maybe for bacteria, but even they need to replicate to renew their genomes and things and to turn over. So I think that goal, talking about goals is really hard. I think selection produces goals and they are, we can exchange goals, you know, I think that's good. We can, I can give you my goal and you could adopt my goal and vice versa. So I think they do exist at that meta level. But selection has produced our ability to have goals. So the, the, I'm going to keep saying the same thing. It's probably get really boring. It's like everything is selection. Selection, selection all the way down. Selection produces life, it produces consciousness, it produces goals, it produces the future. So how does assembly theory tie up into this whole thing of like life? So that's a really good question. Assembly theory attempts to stop saying, you know, what, what is, let's label this as consciousness, as alive, as intelligent, and just say instead, what does life do? What does consciousness do? What does intelligence do? Because uh, assembly theory connects those three things, life, uh, intelligence, and consciousness actually at the extreme. What, do the, what, what does a living system do that only living systems can do? And, and that's really nice because then it allows you to like uh, measure that thing. So assembly theory literally says living systems are able to produce complex objects in high copy number. So that's a really nice sentence. I'll say it again. Living systems are able to produce highly complex objects in a high copy number, a large number of identical copies. In this case, the basis, let's go with the simplest basis, that is complex molecules. So that is molecules that have so many different parts, you couldn't, and, and, and let's say you make a million of them, so you have a million molecule, identical molecules, each made complex, and um, those parts could not possibly be assembled in a random um, process. So life appears to do that. That's, a, that's what assembly theory does, it allows you to measure the aliveness of an object or the process that gave rise to the objects. So it's kind of like the system that works together. Okay, so I want to go back a bit. So you said, wouldn't that kind of make sense for someone who's saying, yes, that's kind of proof of creationalism, whereas like there is a creator and that he has created these complex systems and this is proof of it. Yes, actually, it's really interesting in the assembly theory kind of says, did this have a creator when you talk about technology? But what assembly theory says, which is much better than creationism, in fact, because uh, creationism just is a is a belief system, right? Mm. And and people, I must say, people are entitled to belief systems. We all have belief systems. But what we I think we need to do is be very honest about when a belief system and a science system get close together but don't touch. I am very very vigorous in my wish to not confuse belief systems and science systems, right? Because I think that's where some people, you know, are doing this right now and they twist them over to make an argument. So what assembly theory says is how, how complex is an object, but it also gives you a mechanism to get from simplicity to complexity. It also gives you the explanation of how a cell could form from random stuff, 
and what criteria you need. And this is really what the goal in my lab here, um, you can see in the back in the window, in my lab, we're building a lot of robotics to go from random search through to directed search as produced by evolution. And I think that assembly theory provides a pathway to show not only quantify the amount of creation in an object, but to show um, fully the history of that object in time and how selection and evolution wrote the blueprint and it didn't just magically form. And that's really something I'm having to do very precisely. So you just said that like life should have, like you've said this before, like the universe is creating memory to create life. Mm -hmm. And then you're saying that life, proof of life of like life itself has to have consciousness, intelligence, and then life itself. And that's what it would be. Well, no, no, no not that. So I would say life doesn't have consciousness and intelligence. That's higher life. Hmm. That comes out of life, consciousness, intelligence, can only be associated with living systems, but living okay. systems do not have to be conscious and intelligent. Okay, so can you can you break that down a bit? So like, what exactly is consciousness according to you? What is intelligence according to you? Uh, uh, and then life itself. Okay, can I do it the other way around? Yes. <laughs> okay, so that's because life is the easiest one. So life, uh, living system is a, is a system that can um, evolve and generate complex objects, right? Now, Living systems on Earth are based on cells, and those cells can sometimes co-opt viruses, and virus in a cell is alive, and you have this ecosystem of life. Now that from life, when you get to higher organisms, to animals in particular, animals that have a central nervous system and a brain seem to have this, well, not seem to, they have this centralized unit, the brain, in which... Um, human beings are capable of a, of a particular, maybe dolphins, maybe, maybe squids, I don't know, but human beings are able to abstract. And what does that mean? That means I'm able to learn a language and label things and say, and, I, and maybe I could tell you the concept of my newest concept, right? A, a computer that makes um, an anti-cancer drug. So in your head right now, you think, oh yeah, there's this computer, it's a box. In that box, you put in chemicals, it makes a drug. So the ability to abstract is kind of the basis for basis for consciousness, I would say, because consciousness requires language. Intelligence is, easy, is more interesting in a way that it's like the ability to solve problems. Now, can plants solve problems by evolution and maybe some channel communication? Are they intelligent? Well, in the evolutionary sense, yes, but they're not conscious because they don't produce language and abstraction systems we can interact with. They don't appear to be reprogrammable in real time. They're programmable in evolutionary time. So I would, I would kind of say life in cells, uh, um, uh, intelligence in a selection, selection can then produce another type of intelligence, which is the ability to abstract but to do abstraction, you require consciousness so you can actually think and integrate information in real time. And that, that's where I put it. But I am no neuroscientist. I'm no expert in consciousness. I'm a dumb chemist who likes making molecules. And I think I've got a measurement system for determining if a molecule has been made by a living system or not, or the product of evolution. And that's kind of where I'm chasing it up a bit. But, but it follows that the more the most complex objects on planet Earth are made by the product of consciousness. You know, take the apple 
M1, M2 processor designed by human beings with robots, you know, there's cars, space rockets, technologies. So there seems to be a phase transition in, in um, the complexity that you go from non-life to life, phase transition, complex, but then from life to technology, technology can do even, we can do even more, and technology is uniquely produced by human beings with consciousness and intelligence. I, I I got lost a bit in between, but okay. you mentioned you mentioned a little bit about cancer. So cancer itself is life repre reproducing itself, but to an extreme amount. How is that different from regular life? Because it's yeah. Yeah. So I'm 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 no cancer specialist, but I will give you the the very basic view, which is probably not entirely correct. But from what I, my understanding is if you talk, and let's talk about mammalian cancers, human cancers, right? Because it's, it identifies everybody. So in your cell, you've got a, no, a number of different cell types, right? Associated with your organs and, and in, your, in your circulatory system and all that, and your immune system. So these cells um, have a cycle um, where, they are, where they are literally produced, they do their job, and then um, they then die and then replace. And some cells, I, I guess, are longer living than others, right? So neurons and so on. When a cell is going through its, re it has a well-defined cell cycle that um, biologists uh, understand very well. It, what appears to happen in a cancer cell is that cell cycle, the regulation of that cycle is disrupted and the cell basically becomes much more proliferative. So it's just making copies of itself. But even worse, that cell is probably not doing its job anymore. It's just reproducing. And so it, 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 the, the machinery that does the work the cell is doing is kind of dilapidated and, and basically dysfunctional. And the cell is just taking resources and copying itself. And, and that kind of genomic dysfunction, or that's, let's call it cellular dysfunction, can be copied into other cell types. You can, you know, get cancer in one organ, it can move to others. So cancer really is like complete loss of regulation or a severe loss of some regulation and the ability, loses the ability to die. And this is bad because obviously if cancer takes all the resource up and the organism stops functioning, it's not able to get food and resources to maintain itself. And so cancer is a self-defeating uh, prophecy. And at the origin of life, you can imagine the struggle to start reproducing is important, but the origin of life and the origin of cancer may have some similarities actually, in that it's this transition to basically reproduction. But in living case, it's like loss of regulation. In the origin of life case, it's the evolution or selection of the minimal regulation to get evolving. And then things that are unfit die, and things that are fit are, survived, are selected. And this is stepping stone in selection. So I wonder if we could, if we could view cancer as some kind of breakdown of regulation, which I think is doable, people do already, but then think about it from a selection point of view, I wonder if it will allow us to think about the origin of cancer in a general sense, and maybe look at the markers and understand how we might even prevent it. I mean, there's some really interesting research going on around the world right now, how, for instance, there's lots of people that have sadly got lung cancer, and it looks like that that lung cancer is, is the, the gene, the dis the mutations that give rise to lung cancer in everybody, but it's when they had a particular foreign molecule in their lungs that switched on the cancer. 
So what happens as you get older, you get more mutations, your likelihood of getting cancer increases, but you, not everyone gets cancer. There needs to be an external trigger. And we're just understanding that just now. Not me, but cancer people in the, in the world. So uh, if it's connected to like figuring out how life forms, is there any connection to like, you know, getting for life out of like an, in, an, an unliving object, like say a piece of sand, like you've said, like a grain of sand, would that in any way connect the two worlds? I know that it's, it is what's it called growth amplified without any regulation. So is there any way to connect the dots or is there any research already? Um, yeah, yeah. I, so I, so I, there's two approaches we're taking. So we're, make, we're making a chemical search engine that is looking to search for the features of the origin of life to basically look at, you know, how selection occurs in molecules and just look using this robotics. And because we've built this search engine in chemistry, we can also turn it around the other way and start to search for new molecules that may be potentially useful in the treatment diagnosis and maybe even prevention of cancer. And I think that uh, and that's an interesting angle because you have one set of robots that are just exploring chemical space for life, just systems that interact, become evolvable, and another set of robots where we're looking to produce very focused target molecules that may be used in the treatment of cancer. And bringing those together, I have in my lab right now, just a few weeks ago, we found our first real hit that with a collab an oncologist, a cancer collaborator, uh, in precision medicine that looks really exciting using the same technology that we're also using to search for the origin of life. So we've done it in Glasgow. Same machinery that we're using to search for origin of life has also produced a potential new chemotherapeutic that's better than ones that are in the clinic for colon cancer. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Because that's really exciting. That could really change everything. So what I'm trying to do in the lab, in the, um, because I, chemistry is, is a, a very manual discipline and people do lots of, um, when you invent a molecule, you have to go through a very kind of, very interesting process of inventing the molecule in your head, maybe drawing drawing out the molecule. Maybe you have a protein target that you want to draw, you want to design a molecule that stops protein from working or changes the action of the protein. So you, there's this intellectual process of drawing out that molecule. Then you've got that molecule and you've checked it might work in your model then you've got to take that molecule and make it and and then and in the lab and then using the laws of chemistry and, and physical chemistry and doing the organic synthesis or whatnot in in the laboratory so what we've tried to do is connect all those dots together to have an imagination to imagine what a molecule would bind to biological targets then to then take that imagined molecule and then find a way of breaking it into its parts and then finding a way to turn those to go for those parts to the molecule and come up with actual recipes of 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 chemical reactions and processes that we can do um in the lab for real and to do that we had to build an operating system for chemistry it's like it is software it's like a, a software hardware operating system and invent a device called a computer and a computer is basically a series of um, um robotic modules that can turn a, an instruction, series of instructions and chemicals into a new molecule. And that's what we, we built in the lab um, uh, for with the funding that we get um, to kind of retarget drug discovery and robotic chemistry in particular. And that's target based. But also if we say, well, there is no target other than complexity, 
So basically, we just look, want to generate num molecules with high assembly number. We basically go generate vast numbers of molecules, a real mess, and then show how selection can start to focus them down. So they, both those things are working side by side. So, that, so to recap, you need a robot, you need a programming language, and you need to decide if you're putting in targets to make a combinatorial explosion, sorry, putting in chemicals to make a combinatorial explosion, or putting in a specific target, like please make you know, Tylenol or aspirin or this particular drug and then go backwards. And that's what's so, happening right now. So when it's new uh, chemicals that you're coming up with and then there is a selection model. So the selection model kind of eliminates new substances that won't even make sense. So my question is, what are the selection models like? Because what if you're looking for the wrong thing at the wrong time and you miss out something that could massively change the way we understand chemistry? So, yeah, that's um, so. So at the moment, we're asking two very simple questions. Let's talk of the, or the artificial origin, artificial life area and the drug area. So in the origin of life area, we're just saying, hey, what is the simplest set of chemicals we can mix together in our model planet? And if we let the model planet run for some cycles, do we see any evidence of evolution? And that's what we're, we're doing at the moment. So it's a very general question. So I don't think we'll go wrong there. I think there we'll get new chemistry, we'll generate new leads. We will solve the origin of life in this box, right? It's like, you know, I mean, I, mean, I know people criticize me for saying, oh, I'm too, you know, too, um, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of over zealous in saying, um, overconfident saying that it's going to work. Well, it may be that we get really unlucky and it doesn't work, but because chemistry is really reliable and biology is really reliable, I, I'm wondering if it's going to be actually quite easy to see the stepping stones to life. So that's the life question. Hmm. And not missing anything. Now with, the, now with the targets, you're right, we could miss particular targets. What, how do we choose a particular molecule to design? and then go and search that chemical space. Well, we, what we have to do is really work backwards from the biology. And, it, and so really this is where the molecular biologist and the oncologist in case of cancer um, will have really has the, you know, the number one um, uh, um, is the boss here. And they say, right, here is our cell-based assay. Here, here's our patient, here's our assay. Can you make a molecule that will kill the cancer cell and cure the patient? So really what you do is you go backwards from there and just do your best to try and generate new molecules. And during that process, you'll probably discover new chemistry and new reactions. There's no way we can cover all of chemical space. There's no way to know what's coming next. But I think as long as we have a good target in each case, so in the origin of life target, we're looking to generate complexity from nothing, from just chemistry. In the drug discovery case, we're looking to basically make a, a patient, save a patient, ultimately one day discovering a drug that will treat them and hitting an assay. So as long as we have well-defined benchmarks and uh, uh, tests, then I think we're going to, we're not, we shouldn't worry about what we miss. We should worry about making sure that we get hits quickly and what the cost of those hits will be. So this computer device, what is the computational uh ability of this how far and wide can it go because it goes like okay let's it's 10 per year that's very uh, minor but then how big is it how much data can it basically analyze so the computer is a kind of a, it's called it is a digital chemical system right so it's not so it has 
has a has a computational engine that basically imagines the molecules you want to build. Yeah. It then has a, a, a kind of knowledge base where we know what chemistry is possible right now. So you have this imagination, you know what's possible now, and then with this imagination and what's possible right now, it then produces recipes. And those recipes, it only selects the recipes where it has sufficient hardware to do it. So let's say we, it's a bit like a cook making a, uh, if it's going to make a sauce, make a pie, uh, make a souffle, if you don't have the correct utensils to make these objects, then you can't, you won't, that recipe won't work, right? Yeah. So, it, so it selects the recipes that can run in the, the technology we have available in the lab and then starts to run them. And, and hopefully we get the molecule that we want out and we do analytics and so on. And in terms of the throughput, if you think about it, a chemist is doing all of this by hand right now. The computer does a lot of the dangerous parts and the boring parts for the human. So, so you know, I don't know. Let's say there's 100,000 chemists on planet Earth right now, and they all make, let's say they all make, let's say they're really productive chemists and they make 10 molecules a day, right? That's then... Uh, um, quite a lot of molecules, right? So if you're 100,000 molecules, 10 molecules a day, a million molecules. Then if they're making a million molecules, that, if that's what planet Earth can do right now, one million molecules maximum per day, if we can get the computer to basically do 10 or 100 times that, we're gonna basically have much more throughput. But what's more important is the computer just doesn't brute force, it finds those routes which are e doable, easier, so it can make impossible molecules that human beings don't have time to make because they're just too, takes too many reactions. Um, it takes too much time. And so what we're trying to do is look at the, how deep we can go into chemical space and get there using the robotic aid. It's a bit like a good analogy is thinking about what are the two largest numbers you can multiply together in your head, then on paper, and then on, in a computer. Well, in a computer, the limit is just the 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 basically the 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 size of the nu the numerical space. Like if it's a thirty-two bit or sixty-four bit computer, on a in your head, you're probably very good at mathematics. Um, um, but on it, but there's still going to be a, you know maybe four or five digits depending on them. And then on paper, you can obviously do as much as you've got piece of paper and time to carry everything. And so you should think about the computer as the ability to do those operations, but also more intelligently work out which chemistry to try. And that's so that's why it's a really interesting thing. So it's a kind of a hybrid between a Google Maps and a and a and a, and a speed up for the chemists. And the ultimate what it basically means, I calculate, look. Chemists should be like 10 billion times better at searching chemical space when we're done or in the next two years. I don't know why, but I imagine you with a lab coat, like, you know, the crazy scientist with this crazy machine coming up with these uh, computations with the uh, with all your chemicals. But <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what the results are going to look like soon enough. In terms of the problems that you're solving, along with origins of life, and then also, like you mentioned, cancer. What other big problems are uh, is this computer computer working on? So we're looking at discovering new materials. So can you like basically discover a new um, material that has nice optical properties, maybe used to make a laser? 
Um, we're trying to design new materials that we can use in batteries. We're trying to design new kind of formulation, do formulation chemistry. So like, imagine like a mayonnaise or, or something like this to try to make new complex kind of like, you know, almost like whether you have for personal care products or toothpaste or something. Um, and we're, we're just trying to work out how we can start to engineer complex molecular systems that can process information automatically without needing for digital kind of hybrid stuff going on. And that's something that um, we're also playing with right now. So there's kind of, so I would say there's kind of four separate areas. There's kind of drug discovery, um, materials discovery, complex formulation, and then chemical computation. Can we engineer systems that themselves can process information using chemicals rather than silicon um, uh, infrastructure? Okay, that makes sense. And what about Chemify? So you're the CEO of Chemify. What are you working on with that? Oh, that's top secret. No, I, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you actually. So Chemify is a, a startup that I started early this year and um, Chemify is literally trying to make products that will do computation. So computation is taking code and reagents and making new molecules. So Chemify is a, is a discovery company that is going to basically discover important new molecules that are needed by big pharma, big materials, big energy, where we can just, you know, it search chemical space faster and help basically democratize um, well, not, I suppose democratize this one, but maybe make it make accessible um, complex molecules to more people so they can solve big problems. And so Chemify has got kind of big ambitions and Chemify in my lab and are kind of almost working on opposite sides. So my lab is generating new ideas, new scientific concepts, and Chemify is trying to exploit those concepts and produce a product and a technology that everyone can use one day. And, and literally digitize all of chemistry. So you can take a code, almost like a, Chemify is like Spotify, right? You go to Spotify, you download some music, you listen to the music, you're happy. One day you'll be able to go to the Chemify website, um, download the code, run it on your robot, and make the molecule <laughs> automatically. That's in the distant future. Right now, we've got all the robots in-house and we're developing them and we're using them to basically make a chemical Google for cancer, Alzheimer's, um, antibacterial, um, uh, new antibiotics, new materials. And so Chemify is super exciting because we've kind of got this, uh, this kind of very, you know, market-based, technology-based, can we digitize chemistry and make a difference to the world now? And for me, the difference between the two, right, the grand aim of trying to solve origin of life and trying to solve the kind of getting the technology out there is really interesting because although I'm the CEO of Chemify, um, I, one of the reasons behind Chemify is to make, is to actually produce enough technology that we can use that to build our chemical search engines for the origin of life or for whatever, uh, whatever product we might need. So having the, the two different mindsets is super interesting because in Chemify is like, we've got to invest the money and we have to spend that money very wisely and, and produce new new avenues that are valuable very quickly whereas in the research lab we're looking at the origin of life and how we might understand cancer and how we might understand the drug discovery and drug design fundamentally differently 
So there is this kind of valley of death between my lab and Chemify or any technology you get out there. And, and so that's what, that's what Chemify is trying to do. Code to molecules and molecules to code and making sure that we can generate value for people as we go. Do you think that, you know, this might get some pushback from big pharma because there's huge money to be made with that. And then when you come in and you democratize it, there's a feel like that would change the playing field completely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've done in one of the one of our computers is try to make insulin. Right. And it's not cheaper <laughs> than uh, right now, but it is. So one of the problems we have in the market is we have some weird things in the market. Um, and also there is this thing that and I so to be to, to be really clear, Chemify is going to try and discover new drugs and new materials and work in partnership with cur the current market. Right. We're going to invent a completely new market and work with the current market. That's one thing. Um, but what you have to do, I think, from, a, from a, a conceptual point of view, is like, how do we make the chemist safer? How do, we, how do we get people get access to molecules? So then there's this manufacturing thing, right? So one day, if we've got this code, and this code can be turned into a molecule like code from a GitLab run on a, on a computer, can we get access to molecules more cheaply, more quickly, where people don't have access to the library of chemistry? And I, right now, I'm, I'm actually invented a small computer that could, I want to run it on the moon, right, or on Mars, or um, probably running it in gravity would be better than running it in zero G. And why would you take a computer moon? Well, because you can't take all the drugs to the moon, but if you could take a minimal set of chemicals like toner cartridges and a laser printer, could you then make molecules on demand? And of course, that technology could be deployed anywhere around the world. It seems to me very annoying that large, a large number of the world's population right now do not have access to medicine, uh, the medicines they need because of economic distribution and logistical um, reasons. And maybe we can change that a little bit. So what would be, what would the base molecules look like in a, your Chemify machine? Um, so obviously that's kind of like quite technical for the company, but basically the molecules are simpler reagents that you would buy. And then um, you then, you add those reagents into the machine. And then there's a whole range of different options, different processes to turn those molecules into new molecules. So you almost like think of like, like a move in a game. And what you want, want to do is maximize the clean, how clean the reaction is, right? Uh, minimize the time for the reaction and make sure that you've got the molecule you want out. And, that, and so there is an interesting game that we're playing to kind of figure that out just now. So your computer right now, it's, it's in the initial phase. It's still learning how to like, you know, process and figure out what does it look like in terms of uh, cost, uh, difference because you're thinking of like you know it being available to like third world countries where you know the, the cost and then the distribution uh, like you know issues is what you're trying to like fix with yeah this. The, yeah the i mean the cost isn't so big so right now so we have we have kind of two types of systems right chemify has its own machines called the curies and the cronin lab has been developing computer like machinery capable computation right so the word computer is a very broad term here it's not a product or anything in that concept um whereas chemify is making machines that arguably you could call some kind of products or curies um and so the cost of these um there's a cost of development which is kind of like large 
But at the moment, the cost of the actual robotics is really very going to be very low in the end. It's going to be to like literally just a couple of tens of k, maybe twenty k, and it will go. It will drop down and down and down. And and I don't see any reason why the cost of the kit. It won't be nothing, but it will be very low as we get to know the chemistry. And that's one important thing. The other thing is because they're modular. The same machinery that you use to test code to discover molecules, you should be able to certify it to make molecules. So that then means that you have you don't have this translation gap between scaling, and because the code will run on these. But maybe you'll have a manufacturing scale computer. Maybe you'll have a discovery scale computer go down. But but I but I it looks to me that mathematically speaking, because we'll understand how the The processes work precisely. We should be able to do discovery and manufacturing the same type of device. That means it's going to be very easy to regulate and very easy to certify. And that certification is really interesting because perhaps that means that we can just make the entire back catalogue of drugs in the computer and make them available. Now, I don't think everyone will have a computer in their house, but what about the local pharmacy or hospital or facility? A bit like you know, there are Amazon warehouses everywhere. Why can't there be chem- Chemify warehouses with um, with systems capable of computation producing molecules on demand? And it's just a function of what the local demand is. So you have this distributed network of different computational capabilities for making maybe drugs here and drugs there. Maybe it's a different part of the world, and there's an outbreak, some disease. So that system, so there locally, it's making one drug, and another place, it's making a different drug. And also, even if it doesn't come to that stage where it's so easily accessible, the idea that this um, um, uh, a device can do something where it does so many computations for like different chemicals is in itself like a big feat. Yeah, I I really want to change the way chemists basically exchange information. If chemists can be like programmers and we're exchanging code and we can run each other's code instantly and check the molecule, collaboration, the way we publish, because right now we write out a recipe for a molecule, we publish it, and it may or may not work. And, we, and it may or may not require someone with incredible amount of skills and a very expensive lab a year to reproduce that molecule. And yet I'm like, oh, I like this molecule. Can I put it into my drug discovery um, program? Oh, it's too hard to get. So, But if it was like, oh, here's the code for this molecule. I put it in my robot and I have the molecule in two days. That would just change the world. And so that's what my vision is, really. In the, in, I want to do for chemistry what kind of HTML has done for Um, the exchange of information. Now, some people may hate HTML because they may not like Facebook or they may not like Twitter or something. But but let's not worry about the those kind of things. I'm just like saying that communications protocol, that kind of um, markup language, changed the way we interact with each other. Arguably, in countless interesting and exciting ways, can we do that for chemistry, material science, and also perhaps even biology? Is biology is kind of in the middle. Biology looks programmable, but it's not entirely programmable yet. So, what do you think? Uh, like, you know, where are you at this stage right now? So, like, how soon can we see this happening? Well, um, in term, in the so everything is happening. So, I'm in this, I'm, I'm in this brand new facility called the Advanced Research Center built at the University of Glasgow. Um, um, and we just opened earlier this year. So, my yeah, on, on the top floor is a digital chemistry floor. And one half of the lab is like where 
all the, so I've got four teams in my research group. I've got the artificial life team, the computer team, digital materials, and chemical intelligence. And chemical intelligence is like cheminformatics, programming, and doing machine learning, uh, and generating molecules and understanding. The digital materials team are discovering new materials using computation. The computer team are developing the technology for organic chemistry and drug discovery and drug design. Then we have Chemify that's also nearby where they're building that technology, building the software stack and basically building, you know, products right now that can help pharma, biotechs, drug dis materials discovery companies. So and we're, we're, it's happening right now. There's maybe 50 robots running in the lab behind me uh, right now. Um, of course, there's various stages of design of robots, programming languages being improved, making it so, so, that, so that it's more reliable. The number one thing that we need to do here, not just in the company, but in the university and in academia, is to make everything more reliable, make things safer, drop the costs, and just give scientists access to the molecules they need for discovery and design. And it's looking like it's looking uh, positive right now. Yeah, yeah. Raising money is hard in this market, right? <laughs> you know, but whether it's whether you're trying to raise money for a company or raising money in academia, because obviously academia has is very competitive. The market is very competitive. So doing that right now is is very 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 interesting. But it's working. We're we're changing the world, molecule by molecule. Tell me a little bit more about uh, the chemical intelligence uh, part of your company. So where are they at? So the so the chemi so so we've got two chemical intelligence teams, one in Chemify and one in the lab, and they're both doing very different things. Chemical intelligence in the lab are looking at what um, life forms would look like on different planets, and so we're trying to imagine what would chemistry be on another planet where there's an intelligent species that isn't using the chemistry that we have on Earth, right? And what could the differences be? And because so that's one cool thing. So they're just imagining alien worlds and alien molecules and alien natural products. And that's really interesting. In Chemify, the machine learning, the kind of chemical intelligence team are really saying, how can we more robustly um, do reliable chemistry in our hardware to, mm -hmm. to basically design molecules that people can't get access to right now that are fantastically hard to make? And, and um, we're making massive leaps we've made a chemical gpt and that yeah it's like G, sorry it's like gpt3 but rather than just giving you text and just reading it the robot can run the code so our, what we are able to do is translate um various data streams check they're okay translate them into code kind of chemex and then run the robots with that code to either make molecules, new molecules, or discover new ones, and it's working. It's fascinating. Is, is, has there been hiccups? Because with GPT-3, there were issues, and like it was a learning curve. So was there a learning curve for this as well, the chemistry version of GPT-3? Um, so there's a learning curve, but no. So what we, we're not just producing free text. What we're doing, because a computer is an abstract, is a, is a, it is literally a, a Turing-complete programmable object the, uh, I mean, maybe the GPT is kind of a, a poor analogy. What GPT has done, well, what you've done with large language models is you basically train a big machine learning system to understand language or what? Well, no, to have language encoded in some way. So when you put in some prompts, 
it connects those prompts and will generate you an output that you're happy with, be it a poem, an explanation of something. In our system, we are reading chemistry to understand how to make molecules. We're also imagining from those rules, what other molecules can we make? And then we're implementing them. Of course, it's not 100% accurate. So there are problems, there are words that it gets confused by. And also there are unit operations that we can't do in the real world. That you, you, we just don't have a robot for that. It's too hard. And so what we're trying to do is basically cut, reduce the gap between what we can say we want to do and what we can physically do. And hmm. down, close it, close it, close it. And when we get that absolutely close, we'll be able to make any molecule that is physically possible and at the same time reasonable to access in the kind of the time scales because you can't just make anything some things are actually impossible <laughs> what is impossible by like what you would wish that could happen but is completely impossible like in your sphere of what you're working on um right so it would be impossible right now to synthesize uh, uh by using organic chemistry alone to make something as large as an antibody right now but it's not impossible. It's actually it's not impossible. It just would be very tedious because if, let's say, an antibody is made up of many, many, many millions of amino acids, right, you have to then make those proteins and connect them together in the right order. You then have to basically cross-link things. You have to fold everything up. And obviously, you're, in biology, you have cells that do that, right, for a living. Whereas if you were to synthesize those molecules, right, atom but monomer by monomer it would take a very long time and in the end your yield would just go down to zero so so there are some things where where you shouldn't synthesize everything in the computer you could have a hybrid where you have a bioreactor that generates some complex molecules in a biological cell or cis cell network of cells and then you could have your computer that then takes those molecules and upgrades them and does additional things to them and what else might, what other things are impossible i guess it would be impossible to synthesize i don't know some complex machinery like a ribosome by and it would just be unfeasible so so there's lots of impossible things but the nice thing is there is some chemistry we can do um, now that was just impossible to imagine doing a few years ago, particular types of reactions in the same reactor, particular types of extensions of a molecule that are just would be, you'd, you just wouldn't have enough time to have, get enough yield where we've got techniques to improve that yield and access. Um, it's going to change a lot of things and things are going to pick up even further as we go ahead, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what my job right now is like, okay, the company, I want the company to be successful, be like, you know, the Google for chemistry, right? And to help pharma, I don't think it's going to necessarily compete with it. It's just going to upgrade it. It's going to upgrade it, right? It will evolve. Pharma will be, is very good at clinical trials. They're not so good at inventing new molecules right now. Or they would argue they used to be. Um, what we're going to do in the research lab is we're going to try and use assembly theory and the measurements to try and find evidence of evolution before biology and then demonstrate that really the way life is generated is a gradual phenomena in selection that it's not just um, a random fluke or a creator so we can't random fluke creator no no let's prove scientifically why evolution gets going and so the next few years are going to be super exciting and i've got i'm very privileged to have great um collaborators great team got some money got a great lab 
in a great university, uh, got a great company funded by great investors. So I have no excuses. So I have to, you know, <laughs> so fa fa failure will happen, but hopefully rapidly. So we'll become successful. But that's the science process. You like keep trying until you figure it out. Same with the innovation process. Fail, fail quick, learn. And in the end, hopefully the failures will decrease to zero. Hopefully, yes. And what does the next year look like for you? Like, you know, I know that within two, three years, you want to, like, you know, figure out the origins of life and then all of that. And then also your computer, like making it more democratized. But within this year, it's like, do you have goals that you need to make sure that, okay, I, I'm able to do this or it's just, let's see, we try our best. No, no, this year is conversions year. The rubber, the, in 23, the rubber has to hit the road. I've got this brand new facility, got all these robots, I've got the company that's got money. So basically we need to get the technology out there, find, find partners that will eventually pay. So that's for Chemify and do discovery. Like we want to do discovery of drugs, materials, formulations. In the, in the, in the, in the lab, we want to basically push the technology so we're doing discovery of new routes to biology, understanding how uh, we can basically work with molecular pharmacologists better to design new drugs in the academic setting, work out how we can design new materials. So really the rubber has to hit the road and we improve the robotics, improve the usability. And the other thing we're starting to do is get out into the world, make sure that we can talk to students, um, get people trained using this stuff, thinking differently, um, making as, sure that we can impact as many people positively with this technology as possible. That makes sense. Thank you so much for speaking with me.